during the welcome time, I had several children come up to me and show me that they had made crosses out of their palm branches. So I told them, I would call them down. I want you to come. So if you made a cross out of your palm branch, come down here and hold it up and show it to us. <laughs> Mr. Jeff is trying fast to make one because he wants to show us. <laughs> so hold them up and show everyone. Wow. There you go. Hold them up and show everybody. Aren't those cool? Good job, everybody. Nice work. All right. Thank you. You can go back to your seats. Those are beautiful. Well, that kept you busy for a little while, right? If you would, uh, keep either your Bible open to uh, John chapter 12 and chapter 19, or keep your bulletin handy that has those passages there for you. Um, John chapter 12, as you saw, was the story of Palm Sunday of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the uh, foal of a donkey, and then chapter 19 was um, when the crowd shouted on Friday, what we call Good Friday, shouted out, crucify him. Hosanna on Sunday, crucify him on Friday. And that's what we're going to think about together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come and we do thank you for the cross. Um, even seeing these children take palm branches and turn them into crosses reminds us of this story, of this week, of, of you riding in, Lord Jesus, on Sunday uh, with people shouting, Hosanna, Lord, save us and waving the victory branches because their king has come. And then just a few days later on Friday, some of those same folks were shouting, crucify him. And some of these same disciples were in shock as they saw their king nailed to a cross. Palm branches to crosses. This doesn't make sense to us. So this morning, Father, would you, by your Spirit, help us to understand a little bit about how this story uh, exposes um, our heart's desires and how it uncovers your heart's desire for us as your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, back when uh, the movie Frozen was all the rage, how many of you have seen the movie Frozen. How many of you have seen it more times than you want to admit? Yes. How many of you know all the songs? Good. All right. So back when the movie, the Disney movie Frozen was all the rage, um, I ran across this blog post, um, and, and this is what the lady who, the mom who writes this blog um, said. This is very interesting. She said, there are problems and then there are first world problems. She said, like these real comments left this week on Disney's Facebook page by irate mothers 
who can't find frozen merchandise for their children. All that I'm about to read you is real. Okay, I looked it up. This is one of the comments left on Disney's Facebook page. I have been staying up late every night checking the website. I didn't think the website would refresh during the day. I'm so irritated. My little girl has been waiting for a classic Elsa doll since Christmas. She can't understand why Santa didn't get her one since it was what she wanted the most. Now she's hoping that the Easter Bunny will put one in her basket. She's been so patient. I really think this might be what stops her from believing in Santa and the Easter Bunny. I can't afford, you see, there is a shortage of Elsa dolls. She said, I can't afford to spend over $100 on eBay for a $16 doll. I read that these dolls were going for upwards to $1,700 on eBay during this shortage of Elsa dolls. She said, this whole situation makes me so sad and angry. Thank you, Disney, for killing the magic for my six-year-old. And then there's this gym, which was typed in all caps. And I am going to um, soften some of the language for you, for your virgin ears. Um, she said, what in blankety-blank is the holdup, Disney? Are you staffed entirely by soulless, dream-crushing monsters? Ugh, I'm furious, hence all these capital letters. Unacceptable, Disney. You're literally ruining lives with your evil ways. For shame. <laughs> These are just a couple of the hundred, uh, the blogger goes on. These are just a couple of the hundreds of complaints against the mouse magic makers. And parents are in crazy bidding wars on eBay trying to buy $150 deluxe character dresses for over $1,000 and $30 plastic dolls for $300. She says, so this is what it's come to, huh? Blaming a huge money-making empire for ruining Jesus' birthday and his resurrection because we can't give our kids more stuff. I know what you're thinking. I know what you all would like to say to each of these parents if you had the opportunity. Let it go. Let it go. I know. Um... And it's easy, obviously, I'll admit, for us to hear stories like this and laugh knowingly and shake our heads in disbelief and say, wow, talk about spoiled children. Can you say entitled? Um, but for a moment, let me share with you some of the rants that I have posted on God's Facebook page, if you will. These are prayers that I have actually prayed at some time in the past. These are my rants. Come on, God. We've been praying for him for years. I've prayed and prayed and prayed that you would stir his heart and rescue him from his addictions. Am I asking too much? This is the kind of thing you want to do, isn't it? Why won't you do it? Why are you waiting? Or this one. How could you do this to her? This is... One, I growled, as, growled at God as I was following the ambulance that carried my burned wife to the hospital. She's been faithful to you. Is this how you show your daughter your love? Or this one. Father, please, 
I just I want to be a godly man, but the pull of my me first heart is so strong. You say that you're more satisfying than any broken cistern I can dig. I'm not sure I believe you. I'm not sure I've ever tasted and seen how good you say you are. Why won't you change me? Or this one. Father, why would you let my friend hate me? Why won't you help us reconcile? I want it, God, I really do. Why won't you arrange the reconciliation? Why don't you break down the barriers between brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would you let Christian friends fall out of favor? What message does our disunity declare? And finally, four years ago, I prayed this one as a a 14-year-old girl from our church was dying in the ER room that I was standing next to. She was dying from complications caused by the flu. I was standing outside with her parents, silently begging God, God, please, please don't let her die. Please don't do this to these sweet people. You have the power to restore, to heal. Please. I'm pleading with you, please. And within an hour, she was with Jesus. And I watched her parents lay their bodies over her body and just weep. See, it's easy for me to see consumerism and entitlement in suburban children and Disney divas. But it's a lot different when I see consumerism and entitlement in my own relationship with God. God doesn't always give us what we expect from him, does he? (laughs) So Palm Sunday, this story of Hosanna on Sunday, crucify him on Friday, always confronts me with how fickle my faith is. The Palm Sunday story of fair-weather followers who shake palm branches and shout, Hosanna, Lord save us, on Sunday, and then on Friday shake their fists and shout, crucify him. That significant moment in the most significant week in history exposes my problem. And this is it. I don't like it when God gives Good Good Friday answers to Palm Sunday prayers. And this is what I mean by that. I have the same problem that those people had on that first Palm Sunday and that first Good Friday. The Pharisees, the people in the crowd, and even the disciples wanted Jesus to be a kind of Christ. And Christ, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah or Savior the anointed one. Uh, They wanted Jesus to be a kind of Christ that he didn't come to be. They wanted him to be the kind of king that he didn't come to be. They were hoping Jesus was the miracle worker, victory parade, now let's overthrow Rome, sovereign king of the Jews that they saw on Palm Sunday. But when they found out Jesus was really the abandoned by his friends, beaten, condemned as a criminal, don't fight for yourself, nailed to a Roman cross, so-called king of the Jews that they saw on Good Friday. Well, that's not the Christ they prayed for. God gave Good Friday answers to their Palm Sunday prayers. And this story always gets me because I too can get excited about 
following Jesus if he will be the kind of Christ that I want him to be. But the truth is, and here's, here's the point, if you get nothing else, I may want Christ customized or Christ civilized, but what I need is Christ crucified. That's what I get from the story every time I, I read it. I may want Christ customized or Christ civilized, but what I need is Christ crucified. These folks wanted, and I, want a customized Christ. The word customized comes from uh, early in the 1930s in America. Customized means to make something to a customer's specifications. They wanted a Christ who would serve their consumer wants and wishes. They also, and I also, want to civilize Christ. The word civilize means to cityfy someone, to bring them out of a barbaric, backwoods state into, and to refine, educate, and enlighten them. Perhaps in our day and age, the word might be suburbanize. They wanted a Christ who would fit their norms and wouldn't cramp their style. But Jesus couldn't be tamed. He's just too wild. This was a classic clash of the kingdoms moment. And the quote that I put on the front of your bulletin explains what Palm Sunday is really about. Here's what these authors said. The king has come for his kingdom and has issued a clear and direct challenge to the reigning structures of political, economic, and religious power. This drama can only end in one of two ways. Either Jesus will topple the reigning powers and establish his messianic kingdom, or he will be killed. It's the clash of kingdoms. It's the same old clash of kingdoms that we saw in the throne, well, we didn't see it, but happened in the throne room of heaven when that ancient serpent, the devil, led a coup against Almighty God and got himself kicked out of God's presence. It's the same clash of kingdoms that we saw in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided that living as God's kingdom of priests wasn't good enough, so they rebelled. Essentially, Adam and Eve said, um, listen, God, thanks for all this cool stuff you've given us, but um, why can't we have that one? It's the same clash of kingdoms we saw in the wilderness after God saved his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And while Moses was on the mountain receiving instructions from God on how to be his people, the people were at the foot of the mountain, frustrated that he was taking so long, tapping their foot. And so they said, hey, let's make a golden calf and worship that, since Moses is taking so long. And they said, and so they did, they made the golden calf, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Essentially, they were saying to God, uh, hurry up, Lord, or we're going to take our business elsewhere. It's the same clash of kingdoms we saw in the promised land where Israel rejected God as their king and demanded he give them a human king, a handsome warrior king like the other nations had. Essentially, like a little child, they said, why won't you let us have a king, God? Everybody else has one. And it's the same clash of kingdoms that you and I experience every day when God won't let us have it our way. 
in his uh, convicting but really good book, A Quest for More, Paul Tripp describes this clash of kingdoms I'm talking about this way. He says, we are all kingdom builders. The issue is whose kingdom are we building? The little kingdom wars with the big kingdom. The kingdom of this world wars with the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of man wars with the kingdom of God. This war goes on behind every human intention, decision, thought, word, desire, and deed. Everything everyone ever does is done in pursuit of the success of one of these kingdoms. This war is unceasing and inescapable because it is fought on the turf of each of our hearts. And so here we are again. The king has finally come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's not the kind of king and kingdom the people were expecting. One commentator uh, commenting on um, Palm Sunday said this. He said, The multitude waved palm branches in token of rejoicing and of triumph. Now at last, victory, which meant prosperity or Salvation conceived along earthly lines. At last, victory seemed assured, for if this Jesus was able to raise from the dead a man who had been in the tomb four days, where were the limits of his power? Under such a leader, one could even shake off the yoke of the Romans. At that time, in those days... He says, palm branches were considered to be an emblem not only of rejoicing, but also of victory and prosperity. He says, we could combine the two concepts and say it this way. The waving of the palm branch was the manifestation of the joy of victory, of the feeling, everything is going to be better from now on. Everything is going to be better from now on. Hosanna, Lord save us. Everything's going to be better from now on. Jesus is here. And I'm afraid that that's kind of how I understood Jesus when I first came to him and began following him when I was 10 years old. I had accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, but really, I wanted him to be my personalized Lord and Savior, because I was hoping that everything was going to be better from now on. If you've walked with Jesus long enough, you know that there's a sense in which everything is not better from now on. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to be happy, uh, don't become a Christian. He said, when I thought about Wanting to be happy, I thought a good bottle of wine would do the trick. He said, but following Jesus is not going to make you happy in the sense that the world defines happiness. He said, if you want to be comfortable, by all means, don't follow Jesus. So, I'm always confronted by this story with the fact that I want a customized Christ, a civilized Savior, a Messiah who puts me first. So, given that, you can understand, can't you, why, well, that when Jesus didn't meet my expectations, 
and when he doesn't do what I want when I want it, and when he gives me not what I want but what I need, you can understand why I would start posting those nasty rants on his Facebook page. One of my favorite musical groups, you may have heard me say, is a group called Shane and Shane, which is made up of two guys named Shane, by the way. (laughs) Funny how that works. Um, They have a song called Crucify Him that is written about this week, about Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Listen to these lyrics. They say, I sing Hosanna when I want it all. Then I crucify the Son of God. Because he isn't who I always thought. Not what I want, but what I needed. I sing how great and mighty is the King. Just as long as he considers me high above every other thing. Even his glory. They go on to say, it's packaged differently than Pharisees. It's wrapped in sing-alongs and Christianese. Empty alleluias to the king when my heart is loving idols. That last line captures the essence of my problem. Like the, ca- like the crowds on Palm Sunday, I sing empty alleluias to the king while my heart is loving idols. I shout Hosanna to King Jesus when my heart really loves King Jimmy. And when King Jesus doesn't give King Jimmy what he wants, then I shall crucify him. So as we look at John 12 and the story of Palm Sunday, and I want you to look at these verses with me. Go back to your bulletin, John 12, 23-26. We see that King Jesus has a different idea of what it meant to be the king than the palm-waving people had. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now stop. You'd think, well, yeah, we're ready to glorify you, Jesus. Let's go. Let's take you to the throne. Let's do this thing now. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, but his definition of being glorified is different. Listen, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about what's going to happen on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And then he goes on to say, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus came to be crucified so that he might rise again, to fall dead into the ground like a grain of wheat so that he might bear fruit, to lose his life in order that sinners might gain eternal life. He came to serve in humility because he was secure in the honor he gets from his Father. This is starting to sound a little different than what they were expecting. What's this talk about dying? And Jesus calls me to follow him in this same self-denying life of submission and service. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. By that, he means you, you come along in my path of service 
and do it the way I'm going to do it. Well, of course, if that means you're going to be glorified and celebrated and put on a throne and everything's going to be awesome after that, I'm willing to follow you through that. But this cross thing, I don't know. Again, chain and chain capture the heart of the Jerusalem crowds and my heart too with these words. They said, A man of sorrows, Jesus, acquainted with grief, he had no form, he had no majesty. How could he have the audacity to ask him to give me, to ask me to give him all my tomorrows? How could this Jesus have the audacity to ask me? to give him all of my tomorrows. When my heart is asking him to give me the tomorrows that I want. There's another quote I put in your bulletin at the bottom of the sermon notes page uh, from David Platt in this little book he wrote called What Did Jesus Really Mean When He Said Follow Me? I think part of this quote is in there, but here's the whole thing. He says, we pick and choose what we like and don't like from Jesus' teachings. In the end, we create a nice, non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class American Jesus who looks just like us and thinks just like us. But Jesus is not customizable. He has not left himself open to interpretation, adaptation, innovation, or alteration. He has revealed himself clearly through his word, and we have no right to personalize him. Instead, he revolutionizes us. As we follow Jesus, we believe Jesus, even when his word confronts and often contradicts the deeply held assumptions, beliefs, and convictions of our lives, our families, our friends, our culture, and sometimes even our churches. And such belief in Jesus transforms everything about what we desire and how we live. Someone once said that if your Jesus never corrects you, never challenges, you what, uh, challenges what you say or think or do or desire, then he's probably not the real Jesus. He's just the Jesus that you've made in your own image. And so I find myself confronted by the Jesus in John's gospel. The Jesus who says that living in his kingdom under his ruling blessing means that I have to bury my life in order to see it bear fruit that I have to stop pursuing an earthbound quality of life in order to find a life that is eternity-bound. A life that humbly serves people rather than seeking honor from them. So here's, here's what I want us to do for the remaining moments. I want to ask the question from this text, what will I have to lose if I submit to King Jesus as he is, to the Good Friday Jesus? What will have to die in me if I'm to live in the kingdom that he bought with his blood on Good Friday? What treasures will I have to trade for the treasure of living in submission to the Good Friday Jesus? Three things. I will need to lose my place, my power, and prestige. Let me show you where I get those things. Place. Just days before Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, not too far away from Jerusalem. And as you might expect, 
his crowd of followers increased exponentially. Here's this raising from the dead Messiah. There's quite a stir about him. And this is what John says in chapter 11, before the passage that we read this morning, before the passage that Annie read. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, many miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You hear the fear in their voices? If we let Jesus go on like this, you know, raising people from the dead, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take our place and our nation. They were more concerned about losing their place and nation than they were about whether this really could be the Messiah who was promised. The Jewish leaders were afraid to lose their place and nation, while the common folk who waved the palm branches were celebrating and praising one they hoped would improve their place and nation. So both the common folks and the Pharisees were guilty of being afraid of losing their place and nation. Uh, Allow me just to kind of, I'm preaching to myself and you get to listen, okay? Um, When I lived in Dallas, which Christine and I affectionately refer to Dallas as the desert, um, we love the people. Sometimes the location was rough. Now, I wanted to come back to God's country. Now, I'm from North Carolina, and we know that that is God's country. Otherwise, why is the sky Carolina blue? Right? Don't tell Jim Suddeth I said that. Um, But East Tennessee is right next to God's country and is also God's country. Signal Mountain, folks, this is God's country. And so I I pined away for wanting to live in God's country. I had trouble believing Psalm 16.6, which says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I didn't like the place that God had put me. Well, now that I live in God's country again, now the temptation will be to make this place an idol. And is that not something we're all tempted to do here in beautiful Signal Mountain is to want to preserve this little slice of heaven up here on the mountain. Don't anybody take it away from us. Uh, One of the Puritans, Samuel Rutherford, said this, the great master gardener, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in a wonderful providence, with his own hand, planted me here, where by his grace, in this part of his vineyard, I grow. And here I will abide till the great master of the vineyard think it fit to transplant me. God put me in the place, whether it's the desert or on top of a beautiful mountain. 
God's country is the place where God put me, not where I think it is. Now, the Pharisees were also concerned about losing their nation. Very interesting. And I'm just going to, these are some thoughts I've had about this whole nation thing. And I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself as well. But I wonder how much of our angst over what's happening in our country, America, is more about losing our comfort than it is about loving our country. D.A. Carson said, the world still seeks political saviors. It's still part of our human nature. I wonder if we love this country as much as we claim to, wouldn't we love the people more than we love our political positions or parties? Wouldn't we love the people in the country more than the political parties? Perhaps I don't want my neighbors to see Jesus for who he is any more than the Pharisees wanted their countrymen to seek the true Messiah and to see Jesus for who Jesus said he really was. Maybe, like the Pharisees, I'm concerned with preserving God's country and my pursuit of happiness more than I'm concerned about joining God in his pursuit of my countrymen for the sake of their full and forever happiness. So am I willing to submit to the true king, the Good Friday Jesus, and lose my place if I do that? Secondly, am I willing to trade in my power? In John 12, verses 9 through 11, it says this, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Poor Lazarus. He didn't ask to be raised from the dead. And now he's alive again, and now somebody wants to kill him. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And remember they said, uh, they said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing here. Look, the whole world has gone after this guy. They were losing control, and they knew it. They were getting desperate. They were losing their power. But Jesus didn't come to get in cahoots with the religious powers that be. He came to overthrow their authority and establish his own. But I can relate to their anxiety, can't you? When I became a believer in Jesus, I was expecting him to build my kingdom, not bulldoze it. But this is what a loving God does a loving king does for his people he bulldozes their kingdoms so that he can build his kingdom in and through them and it seems i don't know why but it seems like doesn't it that the things that are most important we have least control over your children I mean, you can do all you can do, but can you ultimately really choose and control their choices? Your relationships, 
can you, can you re- do you really have control over how they're going? Your health? Can you re- do you, I mean, you can do all you can do. I mean, I know some folks who were health nuts in, in the good sense. They, they were so good. One died from Parkinson's and the other one died from cancer. Healthiest sick people I've ever known. That's no excuse for me not to try to be healthy, but what I'm saying is the things that seem most important seem to be the most out of our control. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no Jesus take the wheel. My apologies to Carrie Underwood. What Jesus says is, no, I've already got the wheel. You let go of it. And the question remains, do I trust the heart of the one who has the wheel? Am I willing to trust Good Friday Jesus to rule my life And I say, okay, you do it, because your heart is good. So in order to follow Good Friday Jesus, I need to be willing to lose my place and my power, and finally, my prestige. Listen to what John 12 says. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Some of them even, they believed in Jesus, but struggled to make that public because they would lose the glory that comes from man because they love that glory more than they love the glory that comes from God. Uh, Someone in a church I once served, someone accused me of wanting all the power and the glory in the church. I was offended. How dare they think that a humble person such as I would want the power and the glory. I'm serving Jesus. Now, as it happened, in that case, they were wrong. But in general, they're right. I want all the power and the glory I can get. Just a warning to all of you. Elders, take note. That's, that's going to be my tendency. And you think, well, you're the pastor of a small church up on a mountain somewhere. That's not a lot of power and glory. Hey, don't, don't knock it now. We all, in whatever little kingdom God gives us, want the power and the glory. We want the prestige. And we'll do what we can to hang on to it. We love the glory that comes from people more than the glory that comes from God. But Jesus said in verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And my question is, is that enough for me? Is it enough for me to simply, humbly serve Jesus and enjoy the honor of the Father more than the honor of J.C. Ryle said this, The Christian must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. The Christian must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices in religion 
despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to be thought by many a fool and a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, the Christian must not marvel if some call him mad. Now, he goes on to say, we naturally dislike unjust dealing and false charges, and we think it very hard to be accused without cause. We should not be flesh and blood if we did not wish to have the good opinion of our neighbors. It's always unpleasant, he says, to be spoken against and forsaken and lied about and to stand alone. But there's no help for it. The cup which our master drank must be drunk by his disciples. They too must be despised and rejected of men. So in order to follow King Jesus, Good Friday Jesus, I need to be willing to let go of any prestige that I might think I have. I close with this story. Uh, Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip on the Amazon River, and uh, we stayed on a riverboat for a week and just floated down the Amazon River, and we'd stop every day at a different village to serve there. One of the villages that um, we came to was called, uh, there, was, there had been a huge Catholic, Roman Catholic influence in Brazil. Um, and uh, in English, the name of this village is translated Community of the Resurrected Christ. And I met a man named Charles there. And as I was, one of my ministries was to evangelize, and so I asked Charles, after talking to him for a while, I said, if he were to die that night, was he sure he would go to heaven and be with Jesus? And he said, yes. And I asked him why. And he said, through a translator, because I go to church and I say my prayers every night. That's why he was confident that he would go to heaven. The translator stopped and said to me in English, she said, the word that he used for saying my prayers every night is a word that refers to religious prayers like Hail Marys or just repetitive religious prayers. Um, As we were talking then, a woman walked up, who I found out later was Charles's mother. And Charles's mother proceeded to tell me that Charles was the village drunk. I thought about this contrast and I thought that Charles is just like you and me. He was shouting Hosanna to the king while his heart was loving out idols. Um, Charles wanted to keep his life now and get eternal life later. He wanted to be saved from the ultimate consequences of his sins later while he continued to enjoy them now. Hmm, sounds familiar. Like Charles, I claim to live in a community of the resurrected Christ, but all too often my daily life shows little evidence of the resurrected Christ in my life that he is king. But friends, we can't have the resurrected Christ unless we have the crucified Christ. And so I'm asking all of us, whether you have ever believed in Jesus or whether you're you're the oldest Christian in the room. Are we, are we looking for the Good Friday Jesus? The Resurrection Sunday Jesus? The one who came and lived the life that we should have lived in our place? 
He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he kicked open the gates of hell from the inside out and rose victorious, making a statement that he's the only one able to save us from sin, Satan, and suffering and death. That's the King Jesus. That's the Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday Jesus that sometimes answers our Palm Sunday prayers with things that we don't want. As I talked with Charles, for some reason, I felt compelled to ask him, so Charles, has alcohol been a good master to you? And he hung his head and he looked sad and he said, no. And I looked at him and I said, Charles, Jesus is a good master. He's a good and kind and loving king. And if you submit your life to him, he will love you well, even if you have to give up king alcohol. He will love you well. And that doesn't mean everything will be easy or that he won't ask hard things of you, but his heart toward his servants is good, and he always does what's best for them. So I'm asking each of us, Will we submit our place and our power and our prestige to Good Friday Jesus? Because he is good. And I invite you this week to come to the cross and to the empty tomb and let him prove to you how good his heart is and that he is worthy of the submission he calls for. Let's pray. Father, it's hard. It's hard for us to be confronted with our um, me-first kingdom building. It's hard for us to have you answer our prayers with things that we need and not what we want. Um, And we ask that you would help us. Help us to see Jesus this week. And not just this week, but especially this week. Um, Help us to see his good and loving heart um, so that we would be more willing to trust him with our place and trust him with our power and trust him with our prestige Um, and to not try to customize him or civilize him. Help us to see Jesus and to abide in his love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.